This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Oh, here we go, boys. that sound. This is a good one. Welcome everybody to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I am Dale Luganville. Thank you for joining me in this week's weekend recap and rant. Well, this past weekend, Saturday, the day before the Minnesota Made Outdoors tournament event number one on Maple Lake, had uh, most of the teams out there pre-fishing on Saturday, checking out some stuff and scouting, doing a lot of lot of teams, doing a lot of camera work. Uh, as were we, uh, Joel and I uh, kind of divided and conquered a little bit uh, just because we schedules allowed. We got to lake at different times. And I wanted to kind of test out uh, theory, so I ran first light out to our crappie spot, and uh, they were still there. I found them uh, right, like the bigger ones are right underneath the ice, which is cool. I always like catching them that way. It seems like those are pretty aggressive fish. Um, he had the camera, um, but this was more, so what I was doing is more fishing anyways. And um, so, yeah, I found the fish. They weren't right where we left them, but they weren't far off. Uh, the weekend before, we had found them in kind of like 16 feet of water along the break, and that morning I found them a little more off the break in 20 feet of water, which I don't know that the depth of water matters that much um, because they're right underneath the ice. I'm not entirely sure. My theory as to why they're there is when you would drill a hole and then you'd throw your Vexlar down there, the first few feet were, you know, right away you're picking up a lot of debris in the water. So I think there's some 
algae or bugs or some something going on right underneath the ice, maybe even connected to the bottom of the ice, and then when you punch a hole, you break all that stuff loose. So chances are uh, minnows are up there eating those bugs, and then or plankton or zooplankton, phytoplankton, and then the crappies are obviously there falling behind eating the minnows. Or they're eating the bugs too. That's very possible. Uh, regardless, they were right underneath the ice. And I caught, you know, five, six of them right away. Size was kind of what we were hoping for, you know, 11, somewhere over that. And so not wanting to be, to pressure the fish too much because we need those fish there the following morning. But also you don't want to draw attention to yourself. So I caught, you know, bing, bang, boom, caught some fish. I was like, yep, all right, moving on. And then uh, went to go explore other parts of the lake uh, kind of went in shallow nearby uh, where we had found some oh, a week or so ago. Um, found some really good panfish uh, mixing there, good hybrids. And also you would also pick up the occasional crappie. And it seemed like if you did catch a crappie in there, it was a really good one. Um, kind of more solitary predator-like uh, crappies. So went in and kind of checked that out. Didn't really pan out. Didn't really find much. Um, this lake is known for just... Psh- millions and millions of little dinker bluegills and that's what i was finding so uh just continue to check off some spots um then joel gets there and i meet him somewhere he's found a good spot he camered up some really good fish uh he fished for a little bit uh he said he lost a really big crappie so we had that spot we were going to check off and then we went and kind of camered a bit. Didn't really find, when I was there, we didn't really find anything. So these, but that doesn't really mean anything because, you know, it's kind of a little bit of, I want to call it like not dumb luck, but, you know, just because you put the camera down, you if, the, if all the other stuff is there, the weeds are the right kind of weeds and you're in the right depth range that you've been finding fish, um, just because you don't see a fish the moment you drop that camera down doesn't necessarily mean they're not using that area because they're moving in and out of that cover or along that cover or through that cover um, you know they're not just stationary it's not like in the summertime or like a down tree or a dock or a crib or something that's holding that's just like holding fish and they're always there they're not moving they're not moving around you don't really find that too much in the winter time so this weed line or patch of weeds or whatever they were using they're kind of moving in and out so you can drop the camera down doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be there but it's something if you found them before it's something to kind of put on your milk run your checklist and so we did that we went we checked some other spots and we weren't really finding anything i don't know too crazy we weren't finding anything that was like changing our strategy a ton the downside was we weren't the downside was is that where we had been finding fish was they weren't there anymore so they they were making a move and so we tried to adjust and try to find those fish and you know we would find some here and find some there but nothing that really you know was 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 crazy and starting to kind of freak out a little bit because you know you talk to other teams you see their posts online and through this whole pre-fishing thing for weeks i've been seeing you know people are catching these these big uh, green sunfish and hybrid sunfish, and I was—it uh, was really starting to concern me because we weren't finding them. I mean, you'd see one here, one there, but nothing that you could remotely consider a pattern. 
And with the frequency of the other people were finding them, I was like, these fish are going to, these are going to be a factor because the bluegills, they're not big. You're not getting, you know, every once in a while you get, you know, like an eight inch bluegill, but the bigger ones were those greens and those hybrids, whether it was, or nice big fat pumpkin seed. And so for people who don't know, like we call them hybrids and nobody really knows, but there's different, there's different hybrids. So the green sunfish is an entirely different species. Um, it's generally a smaller uh, species of panfish. Um, they don't usually get as big as bluegills, um, but they have a large mouth on them. They don't have that small bluegill mouth. They have a large, more like a bass mouth on them, to the extent that a lot of people that aren't familiar with the fish will catch one, and then they'll be like, I think I caught a bass-bluegill hybrid, you know, and when I was a kid and we, we stumbled upon a pond that was full of these things, that's what we thought because that's kind of what they look like. They look like a cross between a largemouth bass and a bluegill. Well, they're not a cross. They're their own species. And so they will hybridize with, you know, other panfish species, whether it's pumpkin seeds or bluegills. And then also, you know, bluegills and, pan, and uh, pumpkin seeds will hybridize too. So there's different kind of hybrids. And when someone's kind of hybrid, well what does that mean exactly? And this doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but if you're interested in it, it's something to look into because you can get both. And that's why I think a lot of confusion happens when somebody calls it and they're like, oh, I caught a hybrid. Oh, that's a green sunfish. Well, it might just be a green sunfish. It might just be a big greenie. And those are possible. And it's just getting to know the different species and what to look for. It's just an identification thing is all all it is. When it comes to tournament time, who cares, <laughs> right? I mean, an eight and a half inch a green sunfish or a hybrid or who cares it's eight and a half inch gill like a, that i need that in the bag um so anyways just look into it if it has if the easy way pretty much the easy way is if it has a larger than normal mouth it's probably either a green sunfish or it has green sunfish in it some sort of hybrid and then if it has a small mouth doesn't really look like a pumpkin seed doesn't really look like a bluegill then that would be the hybrid of both and they generally have a different color pattern they'll have brighter fins and stuff like that but it's just look at the mouth if they have a, a standard bluegill mouth because the pumpkin seed and bluegill mouth is pretty much the same and the green sunfish is the only one that has a vastly different mouth structure so take that for what it's worth anyways we weren't finding point being for this story is we weren't finding those and because other people were i was getting really disturbed and kind of losing some confidence um so as the day went and we did a bunch of camera work and uh, we're able, we really kind of wanted to divide and conquer and just cover more water. You know, each person do, because we have two cameras, but Joel got a new new camera and it just, it's not taking a charge. So it would just die right away. So then we're back to one. So now when we ended up scouting together, which, you know, is fine. It's also fun. It's a lot more fun to scout and pre-fish with somebody than it is by yourself. Um, but so we weren't able to cover as much water as we did. Uh, in hindsight, there was definitely some mistakes made, and I'll get to that because now I'll just go ahead and jump to tournament day, and obviously the night before, got zero sleep, which is pretty typical for me. Uh, the night before any tournament, whether it's bass fishing in the summer or in Minnesota Maine Outdoors, um, I just get jacked up. You go over all the scenarios in your head, and you know, good and bad, usually good, you know, what I find myself, in all honesty, like finding myself dreaming big, and, and I conjure up these, 
you know, these scenarios of bringing in a record bag and, you know, all, all the the glory that comes with that and the oohs and the ahs and the, you know, whatever. I mean, I guess that's, that's normal human human nature, right? Um, so the morning of, we're in the fourth flight. We're in the last flight. So that doesn't really help our, our chance as much. But I don't know how big of an issue that is. I mean, each flight is only separated by 30 seconds. And depending on the rig that you're driving, you might be faster and I know there were some people that were in later flights, and they overtook people in the first flight to get to their the first flight to get to their spot. So, doesn't really matter all that much. Probably not necessarily. I think it played a little bit of a role for us, and I'll explain why. So we take off, and you know, yeah, we're overtaking some people. I think we overtook some people in like the third flight. Um, but as we're getting in our spot, as with a lot of people's spots, we're in the north end of the lake. And the landing where we took off was in the south. So we had to go all the way across the lake, like everybody. And as we're getting to that north end, there's like a little point there that extends out. And our spot was up and around the corner. I start seeing all these rigs taking that hard left turn around. And I was like, no, this isn't good. Maybe other people found our fish or, you know, whatever. So I round the corner and I have a little bit of relief because... While, yes, there is multiple teams in the area already set up or setting up, but the the specific pins that we dropped, there wasn't anybody there within 50, 60 yards. Um, so that made me feel good. So we started drilling. Um, we're not finding fish right away. We start finding some fish. Joel's catching some fish. I could not get bit to save my life. But then it start putting you know some changes together, and I start getting bit. I'd lose a really big one. I mean, it wasn't like a 15-inch or anything, but it was definitely 11-plus. It would have, would have been a really nice crappie, the kind you want to have in your bag for sure. And I'm using these schoolie reels, and if you're not familiar with those, go ahead and Google it. But it's like a, a finesse, uh, tight-lining technique, and so it doesn't have a standard drag system like you would use. They have a little spring in it that with a nut that connects it to the the rod and it's just that set tension you can't really loosen it too much and i don't really like it i don't like um i feel like it's stiff because you don't uh, unlike a normal like open face rod and reel you can't just open the bale and you got to like strip the line off yourself which even though we're fishing over 20 feet of water isn't really that big of a deal because the fish i was fishing for were right underneath the ice so pretty much just one arm length and i would drop it down um but the problem that stiffness is i just don't the the drag system in air quotes just seems a little stiff and I'm using, you know, three pound test line or two, depending on which rod I'm, I'm running. So the line isn't very strong, you know, and maybe I need to, maybe I need to up it to four for crappies or maybe even have a six pound setup for, for bigger crappies just so that doesn't happen. But, um, bottom line is I caught this good one. I had it up to the ice, you know, he couldn't fit up flat, which is, you know, we're using a five inch hole. And uh, so I'm trying to line his head up, and then he takes a run, and he goes to run, and, and just my fears are realized because it doesn't just run off. It just, tink, line breaks, and he gone. <sighs> so um, I immediately just, I take that knot off, and I take the spring right off, which I've accidentally lost that has, because I'm always trying to back that drag off so much that the nut is barely on there, and then as just I'm reeling, all of a sudden that nut will fall off, and the spring will go flying, usually down the hole. Um and then, so I've been using these schoolie reels that don't have that. They're they're just like, there's there's no resistance. It's just free spool. 
but I actually like that because then I can just control if I need to let that fish run, I can just put my palm on there and apply pressure as needed. So I'm the drag system and I like that a lot more. Plus I don't feel like I'm going to break my line as I'm stripping line off to, to drop down even to start fishing. So after losing that fish too little, too late, I just took the spring right out. I'm like, screw this. I'm not, and, and that was one of the many things that we'll get to that my instincts were screaming at me to tell me just, you know, when we were pre-rigging the night before and I put a new schoolie reel on my rod because the other, the handle was starting to break on the other one. And I was like, ah, don't want that to break on tournament day. So, you know, you're just putting your good gear together. And I had the thought, like, I should just take the spring out right now because I haven't been using the springs on the yellow one, and I like it. I prefer it that way. But most of the people I see using, in fact, all of the people I see using these schoolie reels, none of them have taken their spring out. So I'm like, is it just me? You know, so maybe I feel like I'm not doing it right. So I'm like, no, I'll leave it in there. <sighs> if I would have just listened to myself, I mean, there's no guarantees, obviously. Um, but I feel like I would have had a much better chance of actually landing that fish, which definitely would have helped us. Um, but that's that one fish was the least of our worries. So we were able to fill our crappie bag there. Uh, was not the crappie bag we wanted. We had the size was not what we had been catching, and we we knew there, there was good crappies to be had out there. In fact, there's some there's some really giants. Like the the day before, somebody caught a 15 incher. So I mean, they're in there. I mean, the the true giants. I mean, that would be a game changer fish right there. If you got a 14, even a 13 or 14, like they grow so exponentially, like in weight when they start getting to that size, that you're gonna have like that's that's like adding three smaller fish to your bag. You know, like that that's that's a big big difference so having and then even having a slightly better average fish even if you don't have those donkeys in your bag if you just have better than average total obviously that's going to add up and help you out in the long run too well we didn't have that we had smaller ones so we pushed in shallow check our shallow spot that didn't really produce the, the morning before but had produced the weekend you know so like well let's see if they're there and we're finding fish and they're dinkers 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 and instead of making a big move we just kept fishing it thinking uh, we just have to weed through these things well another thing that had been in the back of my mind was that why are we fishing through these little fish when we have the technology to know if there's anything worth fishing there or not we have the cameras we should have used the camera should just drop the camera drilled out an entire weed line and drop the camera down and one of us fish and one of us cameras. Just one, two punch, work as a team. And it, you kind of fight yourself because you're like, well, two lines in the better, lines in the water is going to be better than not, than only one. So, you know, you wrestle with that. But I kept having this thought in my head, like, we should be doing this because we know there's these little ones everywhere. You can find these little pods of bigger fish. We should just do that. Like, don't even fish until you find the fish you want to try to catch. Uh, but we didn't do that. And so we weren't finding fish there. I did make a little bit of a change, and, you know, it could have worked out. Um, I went in really shallow, like three feet shallow. I just kept going in. I was like, I wanted to see what the shallow extreme was where I would stop finding these these small fish, these little fish, to maybe the bigger ones around the edges of them. 
And then I started catching these pumpkin seeds and hybrids, but they weren't the size. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, this is the habitat they want. We just got to come into contact with the right size because it was weird. It was like a hard line. You'd be, you know, as you started out deeper, you know, so let's just say 10 feet and drill toward shore. And like every foot, you know, you're catching dinker bluegills, dinker bluegills, dinker bluegills, dinker bluegills. And all of a sudden, boom, it'd be nothing but pumpkins. The next hole in a foot shallower, nothing but pumpkin seeds and hybrids. It was crazy. And then you go back, boom, bluegills, boom. And as you, you know, as I wove my way in and out of that shallow water, it's like there was that hard line of where the bluegills stopped and the pumpkin seeds and, and hybrids kind of picked up. Again, so I just sat there. We, we killed so much time fishing there, just catching nothing but dinkers, hoping against hope that somehow these little fish were going to turn into big fish. And again, why not just use the camera? should have just dropped the camera down there and if it was nothing but clouds of little ones go to the next hole like there's there was no reason to at least check it but we just didn't and then i mean we're burning daylight and we didn't even realize that. at one point in time joel he's like holy crap i'm like what he's like it's 11 o'clock at this time i think we had one bluegill in our bag it's not good this is like weigh-ins at two o'clock <laughs> we have not much we have three hours to figure this out this is not good. So we have our backup plan for, you know, our safety net. We had found this little pod of, of bluegills that were legal fish. Um, some were slightly better than average in there. We didn't catch any true giants in there, but they were, you know, better than the little dinkers that we had been catching. And so we're kind of keeping that in our back pocket. And we thought to check off this other spot that we had found not many but better fish and we had to drive right past that and i thought well we should probably just check that and then he's like oh they weren't really there you know yesterday and let's just go get our let's just go get our bag limit and then we'll try to upgrade after that I'm like all right so we drive all the way back and when i mean all the way I mean i mean all the way this spot was right next to the landing pretty much now the one good part about this is that nobody else is fishing this spot for better or for worse. Maybe it's because it's not that great of a spot or it's too close to landing. Maybe people are overlooking it. Regardless, we had this little spot to ourselves. And the interesting part of like, we did find the dinkers that day, but like the bigger, we just had to get to the edges of them. If you were catching nothing but dinks, just either move shallower, move deeper, and you get to the edge. And then that average size um, started to, to pick back up again. So it didn't really take long once you got there to fill our bag. And we even upgraded a few times uh with again better but not great bluegills and at some point in time we should have bailed even even if there was only an hour left even if there was only a half hour left we should have bailed and really tried to find some you know swing for the fences try to find some better fish uh, but we just didn't do it and in talking with of course this is again hindsight you know with talking with other uh, people in the league at way and you start seeing what was working what wasn't and, um, you know, Lanky and his kid, Hunter, were out there fishing. It was Hunter's first tournament. It was pretty cool. And they were struggling, too. They didn't have any uh, – they didn't have their bag of bluegills yet either. And um, we had told them, like, hey, we got this safety net. If you have, We know where you can get. And this was pre-fishing. We're like, we know if, if, you have, if you're struggling getting your gills anywhere else, here's the spot. You know, and that's you, you kind of share spots to give a little to get a little kind of a thing. You know, it's all part of the chess game of tournament fishing. 
And so he had given us some spots and we had, you know, given him some spots without giving away our best spots, obviously. Um, and so he, he ended up coming out towards the end of the day we saw him come out like, well, here comes Lanky and Hunter. And, and sure enough, they didn't have their bag and, and, uh, they were able to get it there. So it was really cool. Uh, it was cool to see them. It was kind of an emotional moment when they filled their bag for Sean, um, hunting with, or hunting, fishing tournament, first tournament with his son Hunter. And uh, it was a pretty cool moment to be a part of. Um, they actually ended up beating us by a few ounces. So they, we overall, we took 17th place and they took 16th. And, uh, but, you know, at that level, who, at, at that ranking, who cares? Um, 17th place was a really tough pill to swallow. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm aware of, I'm cognizant of that therapy, you know, that there were teams that came in 18th, 19th, 21st, 22nd place. I, I understand that. And this, this, I don't mean to, um, belittle any other team out there. This is just me personally. Um, I have high standards I set for myself. I'm a very competitive person and I don't so much fish against other people as I fish for myself. I know what this lake was capable of. And we didn't do it. And really what it came down to is we didn't do the work. You know, there, it's easy to lay blame on other things or other people or whatever. And really I have none of that for this event. I have like, there's nobody did anything shady questionable or even legal but unethical like there was none of that um the only thing that other teams really affected us i would say and this isn't any sort of egregious act it's just it is what it is and we didn't modify or we didn't take that into account so that spot our first crappie spot while nobody was fishing it exactly there were multiple, multiple teams that drove right over to it to their spot. And with those fish being right underneath the ice, there's no doubt that that pressure had an effect on them, whether it spread them out or just made them like on edge and, and not willing to bite. I think it probably more spread them out. It was probably a combination of both. So, you know, the hindsight is should have known that it, being in fourth flight, and as soon as I started seeing all of those teams go in the direction of our spot, almost should have made a game-time decision right there because we could see other parts of the lake that weren't that didn't have teams on it and should have just made a game-time decision like, there's too many people over there. Let's go over here where there's not as many people. There are going to be less pressured fish. To have, but, again, that's hindsight, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. We didn't do that. But, again, add that to the list of things in the back of my mind. And I did think that I was driving out there. I was like, I should just take a right instead of a left. Go to this other basin. I know we didn't spend much time there, which is another problem. But I know, I know there are fish to be had there, and they're going to be less pressured. But we stuck to our guns. We stuck to our plan. And, uh, you know, it didn't really work out. The other problem is, and again, this is hindsight, talking to the winners, seeing where they fished and how they did it. In the back of my mind, when we were pre-fishing, there was a whole, uh, well, I shouldn't say hole, but it was like a small area, but it was an area that we never really looked. We looked at it quickly one day, didn't really find what we wanted, and then bailed on that whole area, on that whole little mini basin, which, like I said earlier, 
just because you drop down a camera at any given time of the day and you don't see what you want doesn't mean they're never there. It just means they weren't there when you were there. And if it has the right weeds and the right depth zone, they'll probably be there at some point in time. So maybe check it again or expand on it. And we didn't do either of those things. And goes to show you that you have to do your due diligence. You got to do your work. We did not, not only did we not check that spot ever again, we didn't expand on it at all. And the two top teams came from that area, relatively speaking. I mean, they weren't fishing right next to each other, but they were in the, they were in waters that we didn't look. So bottom line is we didn't work hard enough, we didn't work thorough enough, and we didn't listen to our instincts even when they were screaming at us to do it. And that's just on us. And that And it wasn't so much like the coming in 17th place that was the hard pill to swallow is that <laughs> we we shouldn't have. I mean, we had all the instincts were telling us to do different things. And I can't even pinpoint the why we didn't do it, but we bottom line is we didn't do it. And we were outworked and we were outfished and we were out strategized. We were just we landed we landed in a place where we should have landed in all honesty and that's the pill that's really hard to swallow because now looking forward to the season i don't mean to be a negative nancy or or debbie downer or 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 whatever just be negative it it just is what it is and coming in 17th place in this league with highly competitive highly skilled teams that is a deficit that is virtually impossible to overcome as far as chasing that team of the year, you know, taking the whole thing and add some salt to the wound of of that realization on tournament a one. It's really tough. I mean, it just is, I'm being brutally honest with you. It's just, it. I, all day Sunday or after the event, not in a good place. I was, I was, you know, and I apologize to people that, you know, talked to me that I was just depressed and, you know, everything. And I wasn't a fun guy to be around. And I know you're used to the fun Dale. And, uh, but I had to deal with that. And uh, even all day Monday, just, you know, I didn't record this on Monday. I didn't write anything late Monday. I, I decided to write something, um, because I was wrestling. I was wrestling with my words and the words that were coming to mind weren't words I wanted to put out there. Um, because they weren't going to benefit anybody. I was still having to process this. And um, so I finally got to a place where I was able to eloquate myself to express my emotions but not be super negative, uh, find, the, find the positives, refocus, um, and, go, and go forward. Now, why, now, while team of the year might be off the table for us already, um, that doesn't mean that getting a plaque for winning a lake isn't going to be awesome. <laughs> Everybody wants those plaques. So, again, this is a little insight of why this is so tough. But let's say this more likely is not going to happen because it's the field of anglers this year is as tough as it's ever been. We added a couple really good teams from uh, MN Pan. And just the teams within the league grow and get better every year. So it just it's getting tougher and tougher 
in this league, and that's great. I'm not complaining about that at all. I'm just saying the realization of if we're going to win, even if we won out, let's just say we did something crazy and we took first place in the last three events, chances are we still wouldn't win team of the year. Um, chances are we might not even land in the top five, might land in the top ten. Because not only, I mean, yes, those would be great points for us, but coming in 17th is such a deficit. If you look at who is in the top five right now, you need those top five teams to average out like four and a half place or fifth place, lower than where they placed right now, over three events, for us to overtake them. Sure, somebody, one of those teams could have a bad day just like we had a bad day, and they could get 17th. But that's only one of the teams. <laughs> we literally would need all five teams to do poorly, or not even poorly, but just not as good. So bottom, you know, 6th uh, through 10th place. All top five teams right now would have to finish between 6th and 10th place, and we would have to win out for us to get into that top spot and it's just that's it's unrealistic it's unrealistic now it doesn't mean we're not going to try again getting a um a lake championship still awesome like that would be quite the story to win the last three no matter where we finished overall uh that would be that would be an incredibly tough feat um would definitely be a confidence booster for going into the next season um but it is tarnished with that realization that team of the year is, for the most part, off the table for Joel and I. And that just sucks. However, here's your silver lining. So we have a couple new teams. And Christina and Ashley um, are new. You know, they've, they've fished, like, um, WAM tournaments and stuff like that. Women Anglers of Minnesota. So they, they're familiar with some tournament fishing. Um, but it's, it's structured a little bit differently than Minnesota made. And this level of of pure panfish pursuit is just a different animal, and um, and they're new to it, so they have a lot they have a lot to learn, and they want to learn, and so what this I can kind of dial back the competitive nature just a little bit, and be willing to share spots with them and knowledge with them, and and not that I'm the only person that's going to do that all the other members of our league and it speaks to the the character of our league are have all reached out and want to help these younger teams that are coming in and that definitely doesn't change for me but I can now put more energy into it I don't know if that makes sense but so I'm looking forward to teaching them some new things uh like at the end of the the event you know Christina and Asher like what's the deal with this tight lighting and these schoolie reels and so I kind of try to explain it to them but you really need to show them. And so, you know, in the next couple of weeks leading up to the next event in Waconia, we'll just share some ice time. And in that, we'll get on a school of fish that are, are willing biters because it's best. It's the best technique to learn. And not that I'm an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I just picked this up this season. Um, but I love it. It has changed the way I fish. Um, I don't even like using my spring bomber rods anymore. Uh, I just know that I've caught so many more fish that I wouldn't bites I would not have detected using a spring bobber, and I thought I was pretty good with a spring bobber. Um, but I know that I have caught fish that I would not have caught using a spring bobber using this tight line technique. It's not for everybody, um, but it's it's for me. 
And does what does it mean? You know, Nick, Nick and Leif, they don't they don't tight line, and they clearly don't need to. Uh, they dominated last year. They're starting this season off with the first place win again. So they're not. Why change anything? <laughs> they're crushing. So just whatever's working for you, uh, keep doing that until it doesn't work for you, and then maybe make a change. But right now, they don't need to change a thing. Um, but for me, wanted to get better and, and add a new tool to the bag, and and maybe Spring Bombers will get back into it at some point in time. But for right now, I'm fully obsessed with tight lining, and it's a skill that I can. I feel like I know it enough that I can introduce other people to it. And uh, so hopefully this weekend uh, I'll get together with the girls and we can get on a pile of, of willing to bite fish so they can really kind of learn, you know, the tight line technique. And then it's up to them whether or not they want to continue with it or not. Um, so regardless, and it's stuff it's just like breaking down a lake, where to look, you know, when you go to a brand new lake you've never been on, where do you start, you know, and and while our technique might not be the best, it's what we do, and hopefully other teams will share, and then they can kind of, again, they can kind of come up with a system that works for them. And so um, they'll learn how to break down a lake, what to look for. Uh, you know, you go through the checklist. You know, what do you find? Well, when, do you, when do you go deep? When do you go shallow? Um, you know, what are you looking for? So have some knowledge, hopefully have some knowledge that I can share with um these younger teams and, and bring them up and this league will continue to grow. And I did obviously enjoy the time out there. It was so good to be back fishing tournaments, seeing everybody that I haven't seen since, you know, last year. Um, it's awesome. Those friendship, the bonds are just getting stronger, already making new friends. Um, so it's overall Awesome. Pain, still a little fresh, getting over it. <laughs> it's going to be a tough one. Uh, I do think that, you know, if we can, being able to hold up a plaque that says Lake Waconia champions, you know, probably wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be the worst thing, and it would make me feel a lot better. So we are going to pour in as much. What we have learned is we need to work harder, work smarter, listen to that little voice, so hopefully we can take that and prove on the next one. And that's all you can do. We're not I'm not gonna quit. So it's really the only option at this point. So there you are. There's the recap. Sorry if it was a downer. It's it is what it is. And uh, you know, what are you gonna do? So let's move on. Let's let's leave that. Let's go into the rant. And I am sure that I have talked about this already, um, but haven't in a while, but it popped up, and of course was all the flurry on the social medias. Um, but there was a YouTube video from Angling Buzz that was shared, and it is "Do muskies kill walleye lakes?" And so you read the comments, and it's the dumpster fire you would expect it to be. But they're just the short answer is no, no, they don't, um, and they just don't, and the facts prove that. Uh, but as with a lot of different debates, <laughs> oftentimes facts don't matter. You can't let facts get in the way of a good argument. And they just continue to bitch about it. And, you know, I'll, I'll dive a little bit more into it. Um, but like I've said, <laughs> and so, sorry, not sorry, walleye guys, but you are far and away the biggest whiners 
crybabies, excuse makers in the fishing world. Like there is always it, it's a the cormorants are eating all the walleyes. It's the netting, the muskies, uh, the DNR messed it up. The this, the that, the other thing. You know what? It's never. It's never. I didn't figure them out today. It's never. I probably need to change my tactics. Um, if they don't go out and catch their limit, some sort of sin has been um, done to them. <laughs> that just it's it's uncanny. You know, here's one thing. Not that I'm afraid to stir this pot, but I'm not meaning to stir this pot. But with bass anglers, it's just something you never hear. You never hear somebody go out and have a bad day of bass fishing and lay blame to much of anything, really. I mean, I have bitched about when I've had a bad day of bass fishing, when I go out there and it is right after or when they are currently killing weeds. And I think all fishermen would probably agree that that is a shitty thing and it will kill the bite. It doesn't kill the lake. It kills the bite for the short term. Um, definitely doesn't do any favors. In fact, this past year, I happened to be on big marine fishing when that was going on. And it was early. It was early in the year. And there was dead bluegills and crappies everywhere. I mean everywhere. And, you know, this... The stuff they use to kill these weeds is allegedly not supposed to hurt the fish. But why else was I seeing freshly dead fish everywhere just coincidentally? I mean, this wasn't right after ice out. So it's not like it was some sort of winter kill. This was something else that was causing this mass die-off. So, you know, that's not necessarily a bass-specific thing. Obviously, I bitch about wake boats. That doesn't really have so much to do with killing the quality of the lake. Uh, an argument could be made that if they were out early enough while fish were spawning, maybe the giant wakes they create, which are not like waves from just a windy day, that's a total different wake action, wave action, um, that that could affect that year's spawn. Maybe. I'm just talking on my ass here. It's not scientific. I'm just spitballing on this one. But again, I don't call it a lake killer. It's something that I'm going to have to change my tac- tactics. If I'm fishing the main lake, I'm, I'm deep, you know, I'm on a deep weed bite, and I just can't, the, the wake, I'm getting tossed around because these wake boats are going by me every which way. Well, go to a shallower bay where there aren't wake boats, or go change lakes entirely. That does not seem to be the case with walleye anglers. Walleye anglers will blame not just the day, they blame the whole lake has gone to shit. I went out. I didn't catch a limit. The lake has gone to shit. And here are the 12 reasons why. None of them have to do with changing their tactics, changing with the times, changing with the environment, changing with fishing pressure, whatever the case may be. It's something has happened. Now, I think there's a couple reasons why a lake can be changed when it comes to walleyes. And sure, if there was a lake that didn't have muskies in it, and in an effort to expand muskie fishing opportunities, they stock muskies in this walleye lake. It probably 
will change it to some extent. The the muskies aren't eating all the walleyes, which is what you hear. If anything, they're making the walleyes shift in behavior as maybe a walleye or a muskie as they get bigger, you know, takes up resident on a point or a weed patch or a rock reef or something to that extent. And due to territorial nature or just in its activity of preying on smaller fish, the walleyes then have to adjust to the presence of another apex predator. Because without the muskies in there, the apex predators are going to be musk or are going to be walleyes and pike, of course. And which I find interesting that the pike never get vilified. And there are far more pike in any given watershed than muskies. Muskies are a low density fish. And if anything is eating a ton of little baby walleyes, it's more than likely going to be pike, not muskies. In fact, muskies get preyed upon by northern pike a lot, especially muskie fry, which is why they're a low-density fish. They they share the same spawning habitat with pike, but pike spawn earlier. They're already a little bit bigger. When the muskie fry pop out, they're in the same environment. Easy pickings for for the northern pike fry to just gorge themselves on muskie fry. Now you don't you don't see musky anglers going. There's too many pike in this lake. <laughs> they just they accept it that their fish is the fish of a thousand casts. Like they don't they're not blaming walleye anglers, bass anglers, pike anglers, panfish anglers. They just go about. They accept the challenge. They change their tactics to whatever they need to do to be successful at musky fishing. Again, the majority of walleye anglers. I I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say the majority of walleye anglers. The loudest walleye anglers on your social medias are that way. And in this video, it's a great video, and I'll post it in the the show notes. Uh, They have a panel of professional fishermen, and they all, for the most part, all agree that the answer to the question of do muskies kill walleye lakes, no. No, they don't. If And there's an argument to be made that they can actually make a lake better by preying on smaller smaller fish. There's more resources than available to other fish to continue to get big. Um, they're kind of like the cure for stunting. You know, if you have something eating those smaller fish. And again, it's just you're adding another apex predator to the to the waters. Pike are still going to fill that niche. They've they're they they're in like every lake and river and stream in this state. So adding a very similar predator such as pike, adding a muskie to that watershed as we've already determined the muskies are a low density fish is not going to tip the scales and kill your walleye fishing. It's just not. And it you know anecdotally, if you look at state you and you could probably throw Wisconsin in and New York and Michigan and anywhere walleyes and muskies are found. Pick your best walleye lakes, and I would lay bet that they are also really good muskie lakes. So just on that alone, this argument is complete and utter bullshit. However, let's get a little bit more scientific. You know, you see the typical response, oh, are you a fisheries biologist? Well, I know you're not, so I don't I don't know why that's dismissive of a counter argument when 
you yourself making the claims. Like, you get to make this baseless claim, and then your defense of it is, are you a biologist? Uh, no, and neither are you. But that doesn't mean I don't read and learn. I don't have to have a certification to know what I'm talking about. Are you a mathematician? Do you know what 10 times 10 is? I bet you do. That doesn't make you a mathematician, all right? Like, <laughs> I know the moon revolves around the Earth. Am I an am I uh, an astronaut or an astrologist or an astronomer? Uh, no, but I still can learn and understand how things work and have a opinion based on facts. <laughs> it's such a lame-ass argument. So anyways, yet I digress. That's just another reason to shoot holes in this argument. Um, but there are there there are facts be be had. And I pulled up one easy you know, does your Google button work? Use it. And so I started looking into stomach contents and I knew there had to have been studies done. And of course I did not take me long to find a study and it's just started looking into it. And I'm not gonna go through this whole study, but I'll just throw a couple numbers at you real quick. By far, the top two um, prey items that you see in the stomachs of muskies are perch and suckers, like far and away. And then there's other panfish species. So not surprising, smaller prey species that we all understand are prey species. These are usually, you can tell when something's prey versus predator, whether usually whether or not they have giant teeth. Should you lip a walleye if you catch it? No, you probably should not because they have teeth designed to capture and, and keep prey immobilized so that they can eat it. They have giant fangs, and uh, yeah, so they are predator fish. So they're eating prey fish. That is the majority, the vast majority of what they're eating. Now, walleyes are on this list. Uh-huh percentage composition by number so you have yellow perch just to throw that out there at 30.1 walleyes 0.9 all right percent frequency of occurrence perch 32.8 walleyes 1.3 percent of total volume you have 16.9 for perch and for suckers you have 46.6 so a lot of suckers. Walleyes, 3.4. The absolute important index value, 67% for suckers. They have, I guess it's not a percentage, it's a value. So 67, uh, whatever the index value is. For uh, suckers, you have yellow perch coming in at 79.7. So by far, right now, the, the leader prey species of stomach contents of muskies, researched by far is yellow perch walleyes coming in at 5.6 so 67.0 79.7 absolute important index value for walleyes 5.6 we have relative important index and these all like if you read the article which i'm not gonna read the whole thing for you but it has it it It'll give you the definitions of all these, you know, percentage of composition, percentage of frequency, percentage of total volume, absolute importance, relative importance. Um, so you got 21.1 for suckers, 25.1 for perch. Again, they're just these are all relatives. Like they're they're all in the same ranking, if you will. 
and you go all the way 1.8. So 25.1 for perch, 1.8 for walleyes. It is not the same. In fact, if I go on, and I just noticed this just now. So let's go ahead and look. The relative importance index value, what is similar to a walleye? Walleye is 1.8. If I go down this list, find another similar, I have 1.5 for bullheads, 1.6. Is that not the same thing? No. 1.8. So just a little bit below that. 1.6 is crayfish. 1.4 are frogs. That should tell you right there how infrequently muskies are being eaten by, uh, walleyes are being eaten by muskies. There it is, hard facts. So if you want to argue hard facts, uh, because you know more than these pros, um, you're a, you may not be a biologist, but your opponents aren't biologists, and that's all you need to know to prove your point. Um, you're, just, you're just being an idiot. There's another thought that I had about this. So the same people that will argue that muskies are eating other walleyes, probably in an unrelated argument, if you brought up whitetail deer hunting or wolves or whatever the, the thing is, they'll probably jump right in with the, with the, they need to be managed or they'll get overpopulated. So humans being the apex predator for deer and with wolves not having any predator other than themselves, man has to do that and they have to step in and manage those populations. Now, I agree with that. However, what they're not doing is it's the left hand not talking to the right hand. Why are some of these lakes that once muskies are introduced actually improve fishing for all species? You'll see panfish numbers getting bigger, walleye numbers getting bigger. When you add a large predator, oftentimes overall health of that lake goes up. Why? Because those populations of smaller fish are being managed. Maybe they are overpopulated. Maybe they are getting close to being stunted. And then you add in another effective predator, and it can um, help offset the risk of stunting because they're helping consume those smaller numbers of fish. So an argument can definitely be made there that we need to manage those numbers. And by managing those numbers, it's we're taking out those smaller fish. Of course. The top predator, far and away, of the walleye are walleye fishermen. <laughs> I mean, uh, it goes without saying. I mean, if they're not taking limits, they're not happy. So they want limits, 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 limits. How many people keep muskies, especially musky fishermen? They're rarely keeping them, if ever. Usually people that keep muskies are people that don't frequently catch them. It's an accidental catch, and then they keep it. And even that doesn't happen very often. Bass fishermen, are they keeping a lot of bass? No. How many people go catch or release fishing for walleyes? Some, not many. Not many at all. And they're definitely not the ones that are bitching about the quality of their walleye lake, are they? No, they're not. So uh, there's another issue that needs to be looked into is, I mean, for one, walleyes are stocked. They're by far the most stocked fish in the state. We, we dump them in by the millions and millions and millions in just about every watershed that this state has to offer. And it becomes almost a put-and-take fishery. So if anything, 
one could argue that some of these studies might even be skewed because if you're stocking these lakes with strains of walleyes that aren't from those lakes, one, we know through some studies now that those those walleyes generally don't reproduce within that lake and that there, there are particular strains of walleyes that are genetically suited for cold, clear, and fertile lakes, shallow, fertile lakes like in the Dakotas, western Minnesota, and everything in between. So if they don't come from that particular body of water, they don't have the genetic memory to know where and how to spawn. They probably don't have the genetic memory to know where and how to avoid predation. You know, if they come from a dark, turbid, shallow lake in the potholes of South Dakota, and you drop those into a clear lake such as Malax or Vermilion, they never encountered a weed before. They don't even know to hide in the weeds, right? So they're going to be, you know, it'd be like dropping off a goat in the Sahara or not like in the, the, uh, yeah, somewhere in Africa where there's lions. That, that goat's not going to make it. It doesn't have the skills. It's not from there. You know, I bet you could take, and okay, that's a domestic animal. All right, fine. Take a white-tailed fawn and drop it out. Take a one-year-old white-tailed deer, drop it in the plains of Africa, and tell me how long it survives. Probably not too long. It doesn't know. It's a totally different environment. It's the same thing. So if we're going to continue stocking at the rate we stock, at least we could be smarter about it and stock find out which strains do well and what bodies of water and that way you can actually you can actually bolster the overall population of walleyes because not the fish that don't get caught that survive over from year to year aren't just living in the lake free with free rent they're not just eating the resources and giving nothing back to the lake they'll actually be reproducing there are plenty of other reasons why a lake might not be as good anymore of a walleye lake Zebra mussels, other invasive species, more than likely an increase in fishing pressure. Um, so if you want better fishing, better walleye fishing, you can stock smarter. You can help control invasive species. You can reduce your own personal bag limits. You know, you don't need to have the state step in and say, hey, we're reducing the limit from six to three because uh, populations are going down. You can do that yourself. You don't, just because the limit is six does not mean you have to keep six. It, it is physically possible to release a fish. You know, you doesn't have to go in the live well around a stringer. I, I've seen it done. Bass fishing, bass fishermen did that voluntarily in the 80s. Musky fishermen did that voluntarily. And they have better fisheries for it. So take a page out of some actual conservation and self-moderate and self-police and take care of your, the, if you love this fishery so much, then you should be taking the steps to make it better yourself instead of laying the blame on everything else. And in with all that said, sometimes you're just going to have to take, you're just going to have to try different tactics. You can't just always drag a Lindy rig and a leech over that rock point and expect to catch limits day in and day out. Things change. You're going to have to change with them or sit there and bitch, but I ain't listening to you anymore. So there you go. There's my recap and rant yeah that's what it's called yeah yeah we can recap it rant. uh this is kind of a long one last week was kind of short but this was a long one but um thanks for tuning in if you have not done so yet please follow along on the social medias follow full scale doors on facebook 
Fullscale underscore outdoors uh, on Instagram. Subscribe to this channel wherever they are found. We are now on Spotify, by the way. And when you're searching this, full scale is one word, not two. You know, when I was making this company, I really th- should have thought about that because uh, a lot of people try to search and it doesn't come up. But if you put it together, full scale, one word, it usually pops up right away. So full scale, one word, and any of these social media platforms, I'm also on Snapchat, do all those things. Go follow Minnesota Made Outdoors on Facebook. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can follow along. We have we have beefed up our live weigh-ins. We jazzed it up. We have a whole new um, show coming out called The Weigh-In, where we are going to include the Ultimate Panfish League, um, their results, get interviews with the winners, and content. Stay up to date. It's gonna be like the 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 ESPN of ice fishing. So you can stay up to date with who's leading. Um, won't see my name on there for a while. <laughs> Hopefully in two weeks you'll see my name on that ticker. Um, but yeah, follow along. It's it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, we're going to... Uh, we won't take it too serious. There's going to be interjected with some uh, some comedy in there. So um, follow Minnesota Made Outdoors on Facebook. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Check it out. Of course, I'll, I'll post links when they come out to the, uh, the weigh-in. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So... With that said, everybody, be safe out there, tight lines, and uh, whatever your passion, pursue it, full scale.